Hello and welcome to today's episode of The Quad Shot, where we help you down and digest the day's most pertinent cancer news. It's January 13, 2020. Welcome to The Quadcast. Let's dive in. First up, status symbol. Receptor status is a crucial predictive and prognostic biomarker for breast cancer. But is progesterone receptor actually all that crucial? Sure, sometimes we say ERPR positive, but most of the time we think of breast cancer as either hormone receptor positive or not. This SEER analysis, published in JAMA Network Open 2020 by Lee et al., looked at over 800,000 patients with breast cancer who also had known receptor status, and they sought to establish how much the PR status actually matters. Of these cases, two-thirds were ERPR positive, 19% were ERPR negative, 12% were ER positive PR negative, and less than 2% were the elusive ER negative, PR positive, though the latter cohort comprises the largest of its kind on record. As expected, the ER, PR negative cases fared the worst, which is why they aren't treated anything like hormone receptor positive cases. Most interestingly is figure three from the paper that graphs the primary endpoint of breast cancer-specific survival for all subsets, with mean breast cancer-specific survival for ERPR-positive cases soaring 20 months ahead of ER-positive PR-negative cases, hazard ratio of 1.4, and it's 28 months ahead of ER-negative PR-positive cases with a hazard ratio of 1.6. As confirmation, when compared to one another, breast cancer-specific survival was significantly higher for ER-positive PR-negative cases than for ER-negative PR-positive cases. But should we really be surprised, considering that basically all of these patients were receiving therapy targeting the estrogen receptor? The bottom line is, the more hormone receptor positivity, the better. Meaning those with ER-positive PR-negative, and especially ER-negative PR-positive breast cancers, may be deserving of their own more aggressive treatment algorithms. Up second, FGI. So by now, you've likely heard about the Google DeepMind AI system for mammography screening. Here, we're going to talk about the Nature 2020 publication by McKinney that describes the system's performance on large mammogram test sets from the UK and the US. The UK test included real-world screening mammograms from nearly 26,000 women where all reads were done by two radiologists, double reading, if you will. The US test included just over 3,000 women, and these were each read by a single radiologist, different ones for different reads. For interpretation, the AI system used the most recent previous mammogram for context. Compared to first UK readers and the single US readers, 
the AI system significantly improved both the sensitivity and specificity for cancer diagnosis. In the UK dataset, the absolute improvements in sensitivity and specificity were 2.7% and 1.2%. In the US, the sensitivity improved by 9.4% and the specificity improved by 5.7%. What's more, the artificial intelligence system was non-inferior even to the UK double reads. Lastly, the AI system was put head-to-head with six radiologists on 500 randomly selected mammograms from the U.S. dataset and outperformed them too. Okay, so how could this potentially be implemented? Well, one idea is that it could immediately categorize patients into the low and high-risk ends of the spectrum in order to better triage human diagnostic efforts. The bottom line is, Google and DeepMind's AI system for mammographic detection of breast cancer performs well. Some may point out that it's even better than humans when looking at real-world cohorts of breast cancer screening patients. Up next, don't be rash. An immune-related adverse event, such as a rash, shouldn't necessarily be mourned when treating a patient with immune checkpoint inhibitors. You might ask, why? Well, it's because it probably means that the therapy is working as intended, ramping up the immune system. This secondary analysis, published in JAMA Oncology 2020 by Egremont, of Keynote 45, was designed to establish any association between immune-related adverse events on pembrolizumab and disease outcomes for stage 3 melanoma. The incidence of immune-related adverse events with pembrolizumab was 37%, the most common ones being hyper- or hypothyroidism and vitiligo. Fortunately, less than one-fifth of patients with immune-related adverse events discontinued treatment. More fortunate was that the risk of recurrence or death was slashed by more than a third when compared to those who sailed through treatment without any drug-related issues, hazard ratio of 0.61. In particular, the largest discrepancy in recurrence-free survival was seen after recording of an adverse event, a hazard ratio of 0.37. Importantly, This benefit held strong for patients regardless of sex or age or even the need for steroids, although patients who received steroids did seem to benefit less than those who didn't. The bottom line is, there should probably be a high threshold for discontinuing immune checkpoint inhibitors due to an immune-related adverse event, since that may be a clear signal that the drug is actually working. Up next, C79.0MD. So, there's a lot of talk about oligometastatic disease, but what is oligometastatic disease? That really seems to be the question, because it's exploded onto the scene over the past few years. And while it's obviously a spectrum of disease, we need concrete definitions in order to generate meaningful data 
and guide appropriate use of aggressive forms of treatment. So here, we're highlighting the ESTRO and ERTC classification of oligometastatic disease. Additionally, ASTRO and ESTRO are accepting public comment until January 13th, today, on their proposed consensus definition of oligometastatic disease, as it applies more specifically to radiation oncology. We're going to attempt to blend the definitions here. Overall, the group stopped short of using an arbitrary number of lesions to define oligometastatic disease. Instead, basing that recommendation, particularly when it comes to local therapy, on the feasibility of treating all sites. The major breakpoint in overall classification is whether disease presents in an oligometastatic state or a polymetastatic state. That is an important biologic distinction as it represents different disease capacities for further metastatic spread. The former is divided into de novo and repeat oligometastatic disease, with the latter being a state of limited disease after prior treatment of de novo oligometastatic disease. Furthermore, de novo oligometastatic disease can be synchronous, so think single bone met within six months of treatment, or it could be metachronous, so think single bone met five years after treatment. Lastly, we get to these states through events like oligorecurrence, oligoprogression, oligopersistence. Except for de novo oligometastatic disease, aggressive focal therapy would be aimed at reversing these previously mentioned events. To put it another way, the goal of local therapy is to maintain the oligometastatic state by preventing progression to the polymetastatic state. Now, all we need is an ICD-10 update for oligometastatic disease. The bottom line is, using a common framework for classifying oligometastatic disease will help us generate and interpret more meaningful data as we venture further into a new era of cancer therapy. Thanks to Guckenberger, Lancet Oncology, 2020. Up next, padding the numbers. We're here to bring good news to those who have already lost ground on their New Year's resolution to lose weight. Yet another pooled analysis, as published in JAM Oncology 2019 by Kachina Das et al., demonstrates an association between extra pounds and extra life after treatment with immune checkpoint inhibitors. Similar to what was seen for immune checkpoint inhibitors in melanoma, there was a linear association between increasing BMI and longer survival among patients treated with atezolizumab, but not among those treated with docetaxel for non-small cell lung cancer. Finally, drop the soap. Given the mathematical certainty of unfilled radiation oncology residency positions once again this year, program directors in Cincinnati, Cleveland, Nashville, Pittsburgh, Richmond, and Rochester have vowed to not accept applicants via the SOAP who haven't clearly demonstrated a prior interest in the field. 
Check out more details in this past week's Red Journal publication by Carofa et al. This concludes today's episode of The Quad Shot. If you like what you've heard, please consider giving us a five-star rating and subscribing to our podcast. Also, check out our website at www.quadshotnews.com and subscribe to our newsletter. We'll catch you next time.